And guess what? Progress. Chapter 4. Never thought you'd get there. But here we are. Going to continue unpackaging this code of conduct, if you will, that Paul is presenting to us as the redeemed of Christ, this household code section, if you will, uh, ends with verse 1 of chapter 4, and we'll wrap that up today, and then we move into some uh, practical applications with respect to prayer, and then there's the final section regarding Paul's salutations and greetings and exhortations, um, which are significant, you will find. Um, oftentimes those portions of Scripture are glossed, but they're there for a reason. All of Scripture is given by inspiration and are profitable for a variety of things, and I think you'll be shocked as to the, the bounty of truth and encouragement that is found in those sections of this epistle. Before we get into this chapter this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this glorious day that you've given to us. Uh, not, just not because it's a, a beautiful day outside, but because of the fact that we're able to gather here today as the redeemed of Christ and worship you and sing beautiful songs and lift up our hearts to you and be encouraged and exhorted and convicted through your word to come together as the redeemed of Christ, to be here joined together as the family of families is such a significant event. It's important to you. You have ordained it. This is what you have called us to do as believers, as your followers. And so we're here today, Lord, to worship you, to adore you, to learn more about you. And may that be the case. May our minds be opened and our hearts warmed and changed and, and, and our affections for you grow even deeper as we marvel at the wonders of your grace and mercy towards us. Thank you for our salvation through Jesus Christ alone, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's go to Colossians chapter 4 this morning. We have been considering, of course, from verse 22 on the issue of the relationship between the slaves and the master, a very powerful section of Scripture, one that I submit to you has often been mishandled because we tend to want it to make it about employees and modern-day employment scenarios. I guess we can apply the principles that we find there to certain circumstances, but I think to do so robs this passage of the wonderful power that it contains to demonstrate the transformative work of the gospel in our lives, how it truly does change us. As I've noticed so many times, um, justification uh, never leaves us unchanged. And in fact, I would say to you, justification cannot leave us unchanged. There is a resulting change in a person as a result of what God has done in us through Jesus Christ. And we see here in a very dramatic way just how powerful the gospel is. And verse 1 contains an equal punch, if you will, with respect to the power of the gospel, as Paul then deals with the issue of the masters, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. So let's read. Let's begin with verse 22 of chapter 3. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, ask for the Lord rather than for men 
knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Of course, the principles that are found in Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 12, are applicable to these masters as well. And Paul would anticipate that the masters that are part and parcel of this congregation in Colossae and who are the redeemed of Christ would be exhibiting these virtues that he spells out beginning in verse 12 and the principles that we've talked about through the balance of that first section of, or that middle section rather, of chapter 3. Indeed, he would anticipate that a master is going to conduct himself consistent with the exhortation in verse 17, that is, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And so, again, he does, in fact, make that emphasis, verse 1 of chapter 4, masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. This harkens back to the exhortation that we find in Colossians 3.24, where Paul reminds the slave that it is the Lord Christ that they are serving. And in similar fashion, Paul reminds the masters of the same. And so, of course, what we have in Colossae is a congregation of people. Paul refers to them as saints at the beginning of the epistle, as we well know, a congregation made up of a variety of different people from different socioeconomic categories and systems within that cultural context. We have slaves, we have masters, we have other people apparently in the congregation, and we also have a false teacher who's come in and muddled things up to a great degree. But Paul here making certain that these people understand the fact that as the redeemed of Christ, they are going to live their lives differently. And I think that's an important point that I want to emphasize this morning. What we're finding here from Paul is that for Paul and what he is teaching the Colossians, and in particular through these powerful passages that we've just dealt with, dealing with really some of the more, more challenging dynamics of our existence, right? Um, marital relationships, raising children, and then this issue. Um, and for you and me, we're somewhat detached from this because we've never quite experienced the dynamics that are attendant with verses 20 through 22 through verse 1 of 4. So we see the power of the gospel in all these situations. But what Paul is ultimately doing is this. He's saying this to us, that saving faith must involve the heart and its affections. Saving faith must involve the heart and and its affections. See, you see, this is more than just intellectual assent. If you, remind, if you remember, the, the false teacher was asking for that. It was more intellectual for him. He had all sorts of clever things, philosophies, all these types of things. And Paul would say at the end of chapter 2, verse 23, these are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. It was just 
merely intellectual things that he was calling these people to, but they were not effective because they had nothing to do with the heart. They had nothing to do with the heart and its affections. And so too here with these household codes, Paul is driving that very same point home. Salvation, justification changes us. It cannot leave us unchanged. It cannot leave us unchanged. Faith, as the Puritan William Ames put it, is a resting of the heart on God. And Paul keeps driving that point home here in this passage. I want you to pay attention, especially beginning with verse 22 through. Notice how frequently he drives you back into Christ. Verse 22, fearing the Lord. Verse 23, as for the Lord. Verse 24, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Verse 25, the sobering context of judgment in the context or the the issue related to sin. Verse 1 of chapter 4, a master in heaven. Everything keeps pushing us back into the context of the reality of our salvation. Ultimately, what he is saying to the master quite amazingly is that, oh, by the way, you have a master. You're you're a slave in a way, right? The scripture does refer to us as slaves in the context of our joining with Christ. I think at times that that issue can be perhaps strained in terms of its application, but certainly the scripture speaks to the idea of our ownership and possession by Christ. We have been bought, we have been purchased, right? To be redeemed is to be taken out of a situation and placed into something else. Paul makes that abundantly clear in verse 13 of chapter 1, the idea of the two kingdoms, you're in one or the other, Christ takes you out of one and places you in his. And so the reality then is that we have then a faith that is a, is, is, is a resting of the heart on God. Now, out of the heart is where we have the issue of our affections and our desires and our inclinations. And so ultimately then to have faith in Christ means to come to him, to trust him, and to receive him, and then to live in the context of that relationship with him. Indeed, John in his gospel does something that's quite unique. He would say that those who believed in his name are equated with all who did receive him. So we see this transformative work. In John 6.35, the one who believes in him is equated with the one who comes to him. Sinners who are naturally hostile to God will never come to him unless their affections are turned so that they want to come to him. Indeed, Christ would say to those, the Pharisees and the unregenerate, you will not will to come to me. Why? Because they cannot will to come to him. 1 Corinthians 2.14, again, the natural man receives not the things of God. But these people here that Paul is writing to have been transformed. And so Paul is anticipating that the reality of this type of saving faith is going to change the affections and cause the heart to rest on God. And as a consequence, there is going to be a desire. This is what I want to make certain that we're clear about. This isn't just a list of rules. This is conduct driven by a heart that is filled with gratitude. Gratitude so much so that it changes the cultural paradigms in which we find ourselves. 
The transformative work of the gospel is so much so that it causes a slave to rise above being a slave. The the transformative power of the gospel is so powerful that it causes a master to act differently than other masters do. This is significant. The gospel changes us, people. Salvation does not leave us, and this is the problem that I have with this mindset today, that we are now identified by our sin. I am a gay Christian. My sin now defines me. Would, would, would the master say that I'm, just, I'm, a, I'm a mean master Christian? That's me. I'm just that way. I'm going to be that way. Well, that's, that's odd. That's counter to Scripture. Paul would anticipate that there now is no longer that natural hostility, and because of that, they could be and ought to be demonstrating the reality of verse 12. So, as to those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, We'll see that in the context here of verse 1. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. We want to make certain that we demonstrate that we have a faith that flows from a heart that has been turned to love Christ and embrace His truth. What's interesting about this is this, too. What Paul is saying to me and to you is this, that we who believe do not simply know certain things about Christ. We are in fellowship with him. So the Pharisees knew certain things about Christ, but they were not in fellowship with him. The demons believe, right? James tells us that, but they are not in fellowship with Christ. So the concern here is to have a head knowledge, but not a heart knowledge. So faith flows from a heart that has been turned to love Christ and embrace his truth. And we who believe, therefore, do not simply know certain things about Christ. We have come to him because we desire fellowship with him, because our eyes have been opened and our hearts won, so that we now find him, to our surprise, delightful and beautiful. Our faith means that we cherish and adore him. We cherish and adore Christ. And it's because of that cherishing and adoring. Now, keep in mind, friends, don't forget verse 23 of chapter 2. We're we're starting to wind up Colossians. And my fear, my concern is that it's been some time since we've been in verse 23 of chapter 2. We need to be reminded of the truth that's contained there. The idea is that we can engage in certain behaviors and conduct that somehow might be of some benefit, but what Paul is saying that those things will never be of any effect. They're not going to cause you to be able to rise above where you may find yourself in your life in certain circumstances. For example, these slaves. One of the most challenging human dynamics known to mankind, slavery. It's been with us since almost the beginning of time. At, over the course of human history, at least one-third of the world's population has been enslaved in one form or the other. 
That continues today. There are still slaves today who find themselves in a variety of different contexts, but nonetheless, they're still slaves. So what my concern is for you is that we're understanding that these exhortations by Paul, these, in, these imperatives, these directives to them, are given by him because he would anticipate and understand that they have changed. They have been made new creation in Christ Jesus. It's no longer they who live, but Christ who lives in them. And because of that, not because they're living out of craven fear or some apprehension, but they have a heart that is filled with love for Christ, and it changes some of the most unique human paradigms in existence, the slave-master relationship. So much so that Paul will say in verse 1, and this is big, I want you to think about this for a minute. He says to these owners of other people, that's what the master is, grant to your slaves justice and fairness. I'm going to say to you right now that those principles and those concepts were were somewhat foreign to that category of people. The master had no legal duty to do anything for their slave. None. He could do anything he wanted. Sell them, give them the most demeaning jobs known to mankind, beat them, even kill them, and they would not be charged with any crime. There was no penal code, there was no civil code that protected a slave in any context. They had zero rights under the law. They could do nothing. They had no right to go to court. They had no right to hire a lawyer. They had no right to petition Congress to redress their grievances. They had no rights at all. Zero. None. The master, on the other hand, had every right in the world. He could have a slave prosecuted for running away. Philemon could have had Onesimus charged and prosecuted. Finally, Onesimus stole from him, then ran away. That's what he did. But here, and many believe that Paul is thinking about the Philemon-Onesimus dynamic in these passages in particular, that Onesimus clearly is in his mind when he's writing verses 22 through 25, and that Philemon is in his mind in verses, verse 1 of chapter 4. He says to him, Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. A, a reminder that's important for both of them in the context of the issue at hand. And so Paul here obviously opens up this passage like he has done so often in Colossians in the latter part part of chapter 3. He directs it to a very specific group of people. He is directing this verse to the masters. Clearly, there are masters within the congregation of this church in Colossae. It would make sense if one-third of the population of Colossae was enslaved. It's likely that there are masters, multiple masters, and multiple slaves in the congregation. That's a given. So he writes to them and gives them this exhortation. This is a distinct class. Interestingly enough, Philemon, of course, would be in mind, and his response to this would have had a great impact and influence on those others, other masters around him. 
as well as the slaves that were within the congregation at Colossae. It's interesting that Paul then says this in verse 1, consider the language, masters is a definitive category. Now, this is a master whose heart has been changed, right? His faith is resting on God. He understands who Jesus Christ is. He has turned to him not just in the matter of intellectual assent, but he has been transformed by the power of Christ. And Paul is saying to him that as the redeemed of Christ, as a believing master, you ought to and are directed, indeed the Christian life would indicate that you would do this, grant to your slaves justice and fairness. Everything about this is so arresting. Again, he had no obligation to do that. None whatsoever. In the context of the cultural and and legal, political setting in which these masters found themselves. Oh, why would I do that? I I don't have to do anything. I can kick them, I can sell them, I can kill them, and nothing's going to happen to me. But you see, the gospel changes that. See, the gospel is always upstream. And as it's upstream, it then changes that which is below it. And here, it's changing the masters, those who are of Christ. The word grant is important. It's, it's a, it's, it's, it's to, it means to, a, a granting of something to someone, to engage in a specific act. It, it, it takes an initiative. In order for me to grant to you something, it implies that I'm giving it to you even though you haven't asked for it. So it's not like the slave is coming up to the master and saying, could you please be just and equitable to me, please? No. As the redeemed of Christ, Paul is saying to the master that as a consequence of the transformative nature of what Christ has done in you, you are going to, by your new nature, do this. By your nature, you are going to give to your slave justice and fairness. This is how a Christian master acts. So that word grant is important. So he was saying to the, to the masters, exhibit this on your part. Just like I've called the slaves to be obedient to you, I'm asking you and I'm telling you as the redeemed of Christ, as an apostle of Christ, exhibit these things on your part because they ought to be part of your nature. You're not going to be like the rest of the masters. You're going to be different. And in so doing and so being, that is going to demonstrate the reality of your justification because justification cannot leave you unchanged ever this is how powerful it is this is how significant it is so paul here grammatically too places this issue of granting into the present imperative so importantly then the granting or this action that he demands is a is regular consistent and habitual Not just on every other Friday, not just on Wednesdays, not just when the the slaves are behaving themselves the way that you want, but he is saying to them, as the redeemed of Christ, I want you to exhibit on a regular, consistent, and habitual 
basis justice and fairness towards your slaves. <laughs> now, again, it's hard because you and I, we've never existed in this context, but this is so counter to everything that would have been going on at this point in time in human history. Masters, by all accounts through historical uh, readings and, 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 and stories, were arrogant, prideful, mean, boastful, braggarts, wealthy, pushy, hard, stubborn, mean. That's how you find them characterized in most historical writings. You very rarely find favorable writings about masters, historically speaking. They were not known for this. That's significant, right? Why do you think Paul is saying to them, grant to them fairness and justice? Because that's not the norm, right? Christian masters are going to be different. And again, the punch of this is significant because, again, it shows just how amazing the gospel truly is. So what does it mean? What does it mean to be given justice and fairness? This is stuff that we hear about all the, all the time today. As an attorney, I hear about it all the time. People want justice. They want fairness. People hire me in that context to achieve for them what they believe to be justice and fairness. Our courts are set up to render decisions that bring people to a place of acting in the context of justice and fairness. Indeed, it's interesting that our courts used to be divided into two separate systems. There was the court of law and the court of equity. So it used to be that you would go to court back in the day in the United States, you would file a lawsuit under what was referred to as the, in the court of law. That would be against somebody for violating a specific law or code or regulation. There was some, some penal code, civil penal code, that said you can't do X, Y, and Z, and if you did it, you were punished and you could be sued in court. That was the justice side of it. The equity side, the court of equity, is when you simply felt that you had been treated unfairly by somebody, but there wasn't a specific law that addressed it. And so you would go into what is now refer, or was referred to then as the court of equity. The court would make an equitable decision and fashion a remedy accordingly, something that would bring about what would perceive to be some sense of fairness between the parties before the court. At some point in time in our history, the courts of law and the courts of equity were merged, and so now you can still go to court and you can plead, law, you can plead cases both in the context of violations of the law, statutory, legal, or, or uh, regulations, ordinances, things of that nature, or equitable. I'll give you an example. Promissory estoppel. Someone makes a promise to you and they break that promise. Well, there's not really a specific law about breaking a promise. Promises are verbal. It's not a written contract. You may have two claims in that case. You may have a breach of contract claim. That, that claim sounds in law. The promissory estoppel claim sounds in equity. You can bring those both together in the same case now in the courts. So Paul here is addressing both categories of how you can treat people and ought to treat people. Both that which is required by the law, which for a master would be nominal if non-existent, and those which are required by the sense of fairness. So Paul gets them coming and going. The master can't say, well, there's no law about that. 
I don't have to do that. Paul would say in the context of fairness, you should do that and you will do that. And so that's what Paul is talking about when we're talking about the idea of, of the, the issue of justice, the legal thing to do, and equity, the fair thing to do. It's not even so much about equality. I know some people want to equate that with equality. I think that Paul would be saying, too, that I want you to treat that person as a brother in Christ, as whether they're a slave or not. But he wants them to do this and demonstrate the reality of their conversion. What a, what a paradigm shift. I mean, this master would have been the mockery of all of his other buddy masters. They're standing around at the local bar or in the gate or whatever. What are you doing? Why did you do that? You didn't have to do that. Why did you treat them that way? You don't have to give them a break. You don't have to let them have a lunch hour. You don't have to let them go home and be with their families. Man, I work my slaves all day, all night. Paul is saying, don't be that way. Clearly, too, there are slaves involved here. Masters grant to what? Your slaves. He owns people. Unbelievable. And so Paul then moves into the idea of what would motivate. What would motivate the master? Well, the motivation is significant. The motivation for such action on the part of the masters is this, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. It's interesting that the structure of that phrase, knowing, it can be translated as well as because you know that. It speaks to a statement of fact that is arresting in some ways. That's a reminder. And it provides a foundation for the slaves, for the master's conduct, just as it did for the slave in the prior passages. Again, Paul is anticipating that they're going to act like the redeemed of Christ, regardless of their temporal circumstances. Regardless of the temporal circumstances. The idea, too, the implication of the word knowing is that he knows that Christ would anticipate that as an earthly master, he would be fair and just to his earthly slaves because he too is accountable to a master who is also fair and just. Patient, long-suffering, kind, gentle, meek, all of those things. Paul would anticipate that the fruits of the Spirit would be abundantly evident in the master's life, and that these fruits of the Spirit would then serve as restraints on his reactions and attitudes towards his slaves, because again, justification cannot leave you unchanged. We'll find in Philemon not to be the case. Paul appeals to Philemon with respect to his treatment of Onesimus on the basis of the fact that he is a believer. We'll see that very evidently when we get there. It's interesting that Paul is making it clear to the master that he has, even though he may think in the culture that he has complete autonomy, he does not in the context of his relationship with Jesus Christ. He is still under the lordship and control and in a relationship with 
the Savior, Jesus Christ. And again, of course, Paul would not want this behavior to be performed begrudgingly or out of some, some craven fear, but to be reminded, to be reminded of who he is and the relationship that exists in the eternal context and, and in the spiritual realm with Jesus Christ. Powerful passage. Powerful picture. While we are the slaves of Christ, Scripture makes reference to that, 1 Corinthians 7.22. Christ as our master is gentle and kind and loving and long-suffering. How patient is he with you? How kind is he towards you? How long-suffering is he towards you? Masters were known to have short fuses. Some of the historical accounts that I have read have indicated that they'd almost rather kill a slave than look at one. Beat them. Sell them to masters who had even more horrific reputations than they did. That happened. But here we have Paul in verse 1 of chapter 4 issuing an exhortation that is significant and profound. And again, friends, I just hope that the punch of this passage is just hitting you full on. For me, it's just overwhelming. And to leave it in the context in which Scripture presents us tells me and shows me that the gospel is incredibly powerful. That the transformative work of Jesus Christ in the heart of the unregenerate is indeed a full-orbed change. It changes everything. It changes everything. The masters are going to be in this church. They're going to exhibit the reality of their conversion by the manner in which they treat their slaves. They're going to incorporate into their treatment the principles of justice and fairness, things that weren't even really even legally codified by most cultures at that point in time. Rome, to some degree, had a legal system that would have recognized that, but for the most part, it didn't work that way. The wealthy ruled and reigned. The impoverished, the, the poor, the downcast, the slaves were subject to all sorts of injustice and inequity. That was the norm. What you and I have lived in in the United States is the exception to the rule. Most people have never known this. For most of human history, what you and I know to exist as a citizen of the United States has not been known to anybody else. So it's hard for you and me to even imagine a system, but can you imagine one day waking up in a city in which you had no rights? I mean, even the regular citizens had nominal rights. The slaves had zero. Regular citizens had some depending on where you were. If you were a Roman, it was better to be a citizen, but otherwise, it was like nothing. The rich and the powerful had all the rights. They ruled the day. So friends, consider, if you will, just how wonderful and how powerful the work of Christ is in the heart. Changes the man, changes the person, causes them to rise above the most dire human circumstance. And think about the temptation on the part of the master to not be fair, not be just. 
That would be powerful, wouldn't it? That's a temptation for you and me. But here Paul calls them to live out the reality of their conversion. To show them that there is indeed something that takes place in the heart of man when God changes him that has great value against fleshly indulgence. I trust that the Lord has opened your eyes to understand and comprehend and see the power of this passage. And next week, Lord willing, we'll move into verse 2 where Paul begins to talk about prayer and the, the, the power of prayer and the purpose of prayer um, and some very practical exhortations with respect to that. But my prayer for you is that the Lord will open your hearts and eyes to understand and see just how wonderful your salvation is and the type of life that you've been called to live out of gratitude for what Christ has done for you. And I trust that you will do that. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for our time in it today. Thank you for these amazing exhortations. Thank you for preserving this uh, portion of scripture for us even today. Even though we may not live in the context of what is being described, thank you for allowing us to see just how transformative the gospel is, that justification cannot leave us unchanged. Thank you, Lord, for these instructions. We are weak, we are frail. Give us the strength that we need to live for you in a manner that is worthy of our calling and out of a heart of gratitude. Help us to love you more. Increase our love for you. Forgive us, Lord, for not loving you as we ought, for allowing so many other things to displace you. Forgive us for that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you.